Great. We are continuing our series this morning, our new series, and we're going to be in it for roughly six months. I'm excited about this book, rich, chock full of wonderful theology, where Christ reigns. Well, the title of my message this morning is Christ is Superior to the Angels. That's taken from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Well, most of us, I assume, have never seen an angel, at least knowingly, that is. But there's one person, at least one person in human history, who not only saw an angel, but he whole, wrote a whole book about what he saw. An entire book about his experiences. It's not a book about angels per se, although angels are included in this book. Rather, it's a book about what the angel wanted him to see. What the angel wanted him to hear. And this recording of what he saw and what he heard is in fact the inspired word of God. It's called the book of Revelation. And its human author is none other than the apostle John. John relays his angelic-inspired vision to us in a wonderful passage in Revelation 5, perhaps some of the most riveting imagery, most memorable imagery of all of Scripture. We read in Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel Proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Just a pause here, you may ask, what is that scroll? Well, I believe in Revelation, it is God's purposes, God's will, God's instructions that are to be executed for all of history, much like a will or a last testament. Carrying on. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. That is, no angel, no prophet, no created being. And I, that's John speaking, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Friends, that lion that John is referring to there is none other than Jesus. Listen, the strong angel couldn't open the scroll. The elders around the throne, they could not open the scroll. There's only one who rules history. There's only one who is the final authoritative word of God who can break open the scroll and execute it. And his name is Jesus. He alone is superior to the angels. He alone is superior to the prophets, as we learned last week. Why? Simply put, he is the ultimate revelation and prophet of God, the final word of God, to which all other voices in heaven proclaim. 
And God wants you to know it. And yes, the angels too want you to know it. That Christ is superior. Yes, even to the angels. And that is my proposition this morning, my theme this morning. That Christ is superior even to the angels. So what's our response? Listen to him. Oh, church, that Christ would command our complete attention, trust, and worship right here on earth as it is in heaven. May he do that right now as we read our text this morning, starting with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 through 14. Reading the word of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to be a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Let us pray. O Lord, I do ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see the exalted Son of God, our Lord and Savior, that we may see him this morning in all his majesty and splendor. But not just that, O Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears this morning. That we would also hear. That we would hear Christ and what he has done for us. And what he is doing for us. In executing your plan and your will. And for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, some of you this morning may be saying, well, Corey, gotcha. Christ has appeared to the angels. But you may also be saying, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about angels? Of course, angels are inferior, right? That's a no-brainer. Christ versus the little Cupid on my wife's Valentine's Day card. It's no comparison. It's no match. I mean, my seven-year-old could duke out those little pudgy, angelic emissaries that we see on these cards. It's no comparison. But if you're tempted...
to think that this morning. Please don't miss the argument. I don't believe the author of Hebrews here is belittling angels. He's not setting up a straw man this morning to win an argument. He's arguing from great to superior as he is speaking to a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience who is undoubtedly familiar with the Old Testament text and stories about the awesome presence of angels. But since many of us are not quite so biblically informed on angels, I want to take some time, just this morning briefly, to answer the question right off the bat. Why angels? Why the comparison in verse 4, when we read in Hebrews 1-4, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs? In other words, why the comparison with angels when establishing Christ's superiority? Well, this morning, let's have a little class on angels, shall we? We'll call it Angelology 101, all right? So first question, why angels? Well, to start off, angels are mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, about 160 times in the New Testament. Not only are angels frequently mentioned, oh, but they're also numerous. Angels are many. They are come in multitudes. Remember the opening peak we got into the book of Revelation, into heaven? I want to carry on that in Revelation 5, verse 11 and following. John speaking again of this angelic vision. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads. That could be translated hundreds of millions and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is a lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So what are these multitude of angels doing? They're worshiping Jesus, the lamb who was slain. So why angels? Number one, they're many. They're worshipers. Number two, they are ministers. Angels are ministers, particularly to believers. We read in Psalm 34, verse 7. Wonderful verse. Amazing verse. It says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Some of you may remember the story of Elijah. When Syria is attacking Judah. They have surrounded Elijah and his servants. And the servant says to Elijah, Master, what shall we do? And Elijah responds, Oh, those who are with us are more than those who are with the Syrian army. And Elijah says, Oh Lord, would you open the eyes of my servants that he may see? And God opens his eyes. And what does he see? All around him, encamped around him, chariots of fire, angels who are guarding and protecting them. Oh, Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. So they are many. They are ministers. Angels are also messengers or mediators as well. Remember Stephen the martyr in Acts when he is speaking to the Jews who are about to stone him. He says this in Acts 7, verse 53. Speaking to the Jews, 
You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. The law was delivered by angels. How did this happen? I don't know. Don't go there. That's like angelology, like 301 or 401, okay? But believe me, it's in the text, all right? Back to our class. They are many. They are ministers. They are messengers. You know what else angels are? They are awesome in might. Not awesome like God, but they are pretty terrible, awesome creatures. Sometimes appearing as fiery winged creatures in Isaiah 6. But sometimes appearing as well as men. As when those men appeared before Abraham, before they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But hear this, church. In the end, these awesome, terrible creatures will be agents of the final judgment upon the earth that will make destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah look like child's play as they pour out bowls of wrath upon God's enemy, as these angels execute final judgment upon Satan himself. It's all there in the book of Revelation. Yet for all of their terrible power and might, the angels are inferior to Christ. Why? Because Christ's name is superior to theirs. You see, according to Jewish thought, your name communicated your, your essence, your nature. Examples? Abraham, his name was changed to Abraham, right? Meaning father of many nations. The name of Jacob was deceiver. Speaking of his birth in his early life. See, the name of angels literally means messenger. Angels are God's message bearers. So catch this. Whereas the angels are messengers, Christ is the message. Say it again. Whereas angels are the messengers, Christ is the message. And that's what we learned last week. Christ is the word of God who is superior to all prior revelation. So where is this all leading to? It's all leading to Hebrews chapter 1, where we read these words. Therefore, referring back to our passage today, that is based on Christ's superiority, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, our response to this reality of Christ's superiority is pay attention. Listen up. I don't know, many of you are old enough to remember, I'm going to date myself here, but the old E.F. Hutton commercials, I think back in the early 80s. There's a child in the commercial who's reciting her ABCs. She gets to C, D, and she goes, E, F, E, F, E, F, Hutton. And all of a sudden, everyone in the room just stops. Then we hear the famous refrain, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. See, apparently for the Hebrews, E.F. Hutton, i.e. Christ, he wasn't in the room. Or they couldn't hear him talking. Apparently they were paying closer attention to the angels, to the messengers, rather than the message itself, who was Christ. In other words, they were drifting from Christ. Perhaps in the face of persecution or the weariness. They were tempted 
to downgrade Jesus, to downgrade his status, and to fall back into Judaism. Hey, let's just call Jesus an angel. I mean, the greatest of all angels. And you'll be all right. You'll be accepted by the Jews. You'll be accepted, in fact, by the masses. Just don't call him God. We here may not be tempted to call Christ an angel today, but the motive behind the Hebrews' implied temptation, I think it's one we can all relate to. It's called fear of man. You see, angels are acceptable in our culture, aren't they? Remember the long-standing, I think it was TV show, Touched by an Angel? You know, pretty benign. Hey, no problem. As long as you don't mention Christ. See, angels are cool. But exclusive references to Christ, divinity and salvation, are not. That is offensive, more and more so in our culture today. Just call Jesus a great man, right? A great man of moral excellence and virtue. Or at least emphasize his humanity. Just call Jesus a prophet. Hey, even Muslims do that. He's a prophet. A great prophet. Just call Jesus a hero, the prime example of self-sacrifice. But don't call him God. And that's what we hear today. If you do so in the public square, at least with any exclusivity, that he is God and the only God, the only way to, only way to God, you'll likely hear accusations, won't you, of intolerance, of bigotry, of narrow-mindedness. You see why? You call Christ God? If you do, you need to listen to him. You need to obey him. And yes, you need to worship him. Why? Because Christ's name, which he has inherited, is more excellent than even the angels themselves. What is that name of Jesus? It's the name Son. For he is the Son of God. And we're going to unpack that this morning. You see, in verses 1 through 4 last week, the opening to Hebrews, realize God has spoken to us by his son. Now in verse 5 and following, God is going to speak to us about his son through Old Testament scripture. It's almost doing it in a way, so to speak, that we could overhear God's words, God's proclamation about his very son. See, the very thing that he wants us to hear is that Christ is his son. That is Christ's name. That is his primary identity. It's the name which expresses a unique relationship with the Father. A relationship that angels don't share, the prophets don't share, no messenger shares, that no creature can claim. We see twice in our passage this rhetorical question, for, to which of the angels did God ever say? And the answer, resoundingly, is none. For there was none like Jesus. So our first point, why angels? Our second point, well, how is Christ then superior to the angels? And two main points in the text this morning. Number one, he is superior as God's son. He is superior, number one, as God's son. Yes, angels are his servants, but Jesus is his son. The author quotes here two well-known passages in verse 5. They're taken from Psalm 2-7. In 2 Samuel 7.14, these passages speak 
of kings, David's covenant heir, the one to whom God will designate his very own son. We read in the first of the two quotes in verse 5, coming from Psalm 2, this royal psalm. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And secondly, from 2 Samuel 7, 14, this great Davidic covenant, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. The father has always wanted to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is his son. Do you remember the story of the transfiguration of Jesus? It's found in Matthew 17. Christ is with his inner circle of disciples. He's with Peter, James, and John. And he leads into a high mountain, a little retreat, you could say, up on this high mountain. So there is Jesus, transfigured before their eyes. And who is he with? Moses and Elijah. Peter, the jabber box that he is, hey, Lord, this is grand. This is great. Let's camp out. I'll pitch some tents. You know what? I'll get a fire going as well. We can make some s'mores. By the way, since I've been down here, really, some people don't know what s'mores are. Ah, roast marshmallows over the fire. And you squish them between a big block of Hershey chocolate and graham cracker and make a sandwich out of it. He goes, this is great, Lord. We'll make some s'mores. You know what? I got my telescoping rods here. We'll roast some hot dogs as well. This is great. Clear night, stars, great view below. Man, let's camp out. See, I'm with Peter on this one. I love camping. This is great. But listen to Christ's words in verse 5, Matthew 17. He, that's Peter, was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Uh-oh. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The words almost verbatim of what the father spoke to the son when he was baptized with the addition of these words. Listen to him. In other words, Peter, shut up. Shut up and listen to my son. Yeah, I know Moses is here. Yeah, Mr. Ten Commandments, Mr. Prophet, he's here. Yeah, I know Elijah's here. Elijah, Mr. Prophet. But this is my son. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the giver of the law. He's superior to Elijah, the prophet. He's my son. And I want you to listen to him. Sound familiar? It's Hebrews 1. It's Hebrews 2. So the question this morning for us, church, are you listening? Do you want to hear God in the din and the whirl of your daily life? Listen to Jesus, the Son of God. Do you know what it is to come to Jesus and to listen? What it is to come to him, to calm your heart before him in the faces of trouble, grief, pain, confusion, and listen to him? Do you know what it is to cry out to Jesus and to listen to him? Do you know what you'll hear? 
when you listen, you will hear of God's great salvation through Jesus, through Christ. I believe you'll hear him say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And because God is pleased with his son, God is pleased with you. For all those who are in Christ Jesus, for all those who accepted Christ's atoning work for your sin upon the cross and have placed your faith in him, he's pleased. You see, Christ lived the perfect life that you could not live in your place. Christ died as the perfect sacrifice in your place so that you may live that you may be righteous in Christ, that God the Father may be eternally pleased with you. I need to hear that. I need to hear it again and again and again. You may say, Corey, I want to hear that too. How do I hear that? This is how you hear it. You turn off the iPhone, get off the internet, you turn off the TV, and you open up the Word of God, Scripture, and you pray, and you listen. God wants to speak to you through his son. God wants to reveal himself through his son, Jesus. He wants to take these truths in here about who Christ is, what he has done, and what he is doing, and what he will do. He wants to deliver those truths to your heart personally. These aren't just abstract concepts Christ came to save nameless person A, nameless person B. Christ is sanctifying nameless person A, nameless person B. No, he wants you to hear that he came to save you, and that he is sanctifying you day by day. And we need to hear that. We need to personalize it as well. We need to embed our story in God's story. What is the story? It's the story of Christ and what he's doing. So when we say, listen to Christ, we're saying, listen to what God has accomplished through Christ and what he's now doing through Christ. That's what we mean by listen. But it doesn't come always in five-minute snippets, does it? It comes taking time to hear, to open up the word, and placing and posturing ourselves before the word that we may hear God speak. I need to do that repeatedly. I need to hear repeatedly when I'm faced with temptation that I, in Christ, am dead to sin and alive to him. I need to hear it. I need to hear it again from Romans 6. I need God to speak that to my heart. I don't mean speak it some, like some loud, booming voice of the Father speaking to the Son. No, speak it. It doesn't quietly, but it's assuredly and with faith as I read the word of God that, yes, I'm Dead to sin and lie to Christ. I, the power of sin has been broken at the cross. I'm no longer a bondage to sin. I can say no to sin. I can say yes to Christ. The grace of God that has appeared. That's Jesus. Titus 2, 11-14. Has appeared. Giving me grace. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes. To live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. I need to hear that. I need to hear more than that as well. I need to hear personally that God has good works prepared for me. For those who were with us during our GROW course this past Wednesday, we spoke from Ephesians 2. Yes, for our grace we've been saved through faith. 
It's not myself. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works that I should boast. But then we read in Ephesians, the next verse, Ephesians 2.10. For we, and I'll personalize it, for I am his workmanship. I am created in Christ Jesus for good works. And catch this, which God prepared beforehand. That we, that I, should walk at them. Oh, I need to hear that. God has good works for me. He has good works for you to walk in. He has prepared them before all eternity. When he chose you. When he chose to save you. He chose to save you that you may serve. To walk in those good works. I find that immensely encouraging. We were just glorying in that truth on Wednesday nights. Oh, my labor as a husband, as a father, yours as a mother, or as a wife, on your job. It's not in vain. More than that, I'm not going to miss. I'm not going to miss it. If God has good works for me, I'm not going to miss those good works. As I abide in him. I find that immensely encouraging. I don't have to strive. Is this in myself? To be recognized? No. I will not miss those good works. And God, since he called me to do those good works, will give me the grace to do them. See, that's, that's Christ speaking about what his works has accomplished and what he wants to accomplish in your life, in my life. As I open up scripture, as I listen, as he reorients me back to the Son, into that eternal Christward perspective. You see, some of you, you're just talking all the time. Jabber, jabber, jabber. Talk, talk, talk. You're just doing, doing, doing. Worried about this, you're worried about that. And God is saying to you this morning, this could be the main theme of the soul sermon. You ready? Shh. That's what he's saying. I'll say it again. Shh. Listen. Listen. Listen to my son. If not, you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. God's saying, slow down. We heard it this morning, that wonderful word, Monica. Slow down. I'm in control. I have good works for you prepared. Yes, I am working in and through you, through my son, Jesus Christ, according to my will and to my glory. Luke 10, 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What did Mary choose? We read in Luke 10, 39. And she, Martha, had a sister called Mary, listen to this, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened, and listened to his teaching. Are you sitting, are you listening this morning to God's one and only Son, Jesus you see, when God says that Jesus is his son, oh, he's saying so much. He's saying that this is my heir. This son of mine is the enthroned king. He is the sovereign one. Yes, angels are his servants. But Jesus is his son, speaking to the unique relationship that the son has with the father. Yes, angels are God's servants. But Jesus is the sovereign one, speaking to Christ's unique, invested authority. 
So in our text, the author is arguing that, yes, Jesus is superior to angels. How? As the son. Now, number two, as the sovereign one, as the king of all. Remember Peter at the Mount Transfiguration? Who was he looking at there when he saw Christ in those bright, glowing garments? You know who he was seeing? He was seeing the glorified Christ. He was getting a preview of the son's exaltation that was about to occur after his crucifixion and resurrection and his ascension back to heaven upon the throne of God. That's exactly what the first quote in verse 5 of Hebrews 1 is talking about when it's quoting this royal psalm about a king from Psalm 2. We read these curious words from Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What does that mean, today I have begotten you? Does this mean that Christ was once not his son, and then suddenly he became his son? Well, no, we know from many parts of Scripture that is not the case. But what was he talking about here? Today I have begotten you. See, the word today was taken to mean by early Christians to refer to the day of Christ's resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. Jot down Romans 1.4. Can't go there. I want to know how that comes about. I think a clear text that makes that link for us. You see, the author of Hebrews is saying, he's applying this royal text to Christ. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In other words, today I have exalted you. This begotten son of God is the exalted one. He is the sovereign one. He is the king. But now as the glorified son who's now reigning in heaven, all the prerogatives and the full exercise of sonship is now his as the crucified and resurrected and exalted one. It's this son of God, the glorified son, whom Peter got a sneak peek of on that mountain of transfiguration. It's this exalted reigning king that he's speaking about in our second quote in verse 5 from Second Samuel 7.14. This wonderful passage about this Davidic king, his offspring, who would have a kingdom forever and who rule eternally. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That is the son of God. He is the heir and the sovereign ruling one. But the author, Hebrew doesn't stop there, does he? In verse six, he states that the sovereign one is what? The firstborn into the world. Firstborn into the world. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean Christ was created. It means that he is preeminent over all creation. It says in Colossians 1 that he's the firstborn of creation and the firstborn among the dead. Why? That he may be preeminent in all things. In other words, the son who is a sovereign one, he is the preeminent one. That he may be worshipped. That he is worthy to rule and to worship. We see again in verse 6, author quoting another text, now from Deuteronomy 32, and says these words. An appropriate response, what we've just heard. He says, let all God's angels worship him. It's the angels who worship the Son. It's the angels who serve God and serve his purposes. Quoting from Psalm 104, we see now in verse 7, the author says this. He makes his angels winds 
and his ministers a flame of fire. Do you see the contrast between angels and the sun? It couldn't be more clear. It's the difference between the creature and the creator, between servant and the sovereign one. To drive home this point, the author of Hebrew gives us two more lengthier quotes to establish Christ's superiority as a son who is a sovereign one. The first comes from Psalm 45 and is found in verses 8 and 9. Just look there at that verse. Look at the vocabulary used in these two verses. Throne, scepter, kingdom, anointed, forever. So who does Christ, the sovereign one, rule? All those who are his servants. Who are his servants? Certainly includes, as we have learned, the angels. God has anointed his sovereign one. With what? The oil of gladness beyond your companions. Who are his companions? Oh, they certainly include angels. His ministers who are doing his bidding. Now quoting, as we're chugging along here, another psalm, Psalm 102. The author reaffirms the Son as the eternally sovereign one, as the creator of heavens and earth, who does not change. In contrast to all creation, including the angels themselves, in verses 10 through 12, we read this. And you, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth. In the beginning, in the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. All of creation is subject to change and dissolution. The heavens and earth will change. Angels will change. People will change. But Christ will never change, for he is God. You see, in this verse here, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 102. And its context is the psalm of the afflicted, of those who are in pain and sorrow. So how does the author console himself amidst life's distress and uncertainty as well. He says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever and you never change. The aforementioned quotes in Hebrews. So why should I listen to Jesus? Oh yes, because he's the son of God. Yes, because he is the sovereign one of God. Because he rules from heaven and he never changes. He is trustworthy as we'll learn later on in Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character never, never changes. You see, Christ is never out of character. The Father doesn't look to him one day from his throne and say, Son, you're a little out of character today. I think you're acting a little harsh, aren't you? No. Christ always acts consistent with his character, with his justice, with his mercy, and with his love. Just a side note as well, I want you to hear this. Christ's perception of you in Christ, in himself, it never changes. Christ doesn't wake up one morning as if he would ever wake up. He doesn't wake up, never sleeps. But theoretically saying, he doesn't wake up and say, hmm, I'm not sure I like Corey this morning. 
I don't know. Hey, Father, do I like Corey this morning? That's not in his mind. Not for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he chose me. All those who are in Christ, he chose you. He chose you to be adopted into his family as children of God. You are his. He's not wavering day to day. Oh, yes, he may be grieved by our sin, but he's not changing our perception of you. Why? Because you died. You're in Christ Jesus. You've been raised with him in the heavenlies. You are family. You are his. His perception is not changing. Because he sees you, he sees himself. Because you're in Christ. Oh, that's good news. So Christ never changes. His character never changes. And his purposes never change as well. Never. The purposes of the eternal reigning king never change. You understand, every molecule, every minute, every man is under his sovereign rule. There is no stray molecules in this universe. There is no stray minute that got away from him. There's no stray man or woman or person that somehow are outside his reach or his attention. No. Because he's the reigning sovereign one. So what is he doing? That's what God's doing. You know what God's doing? Back to our lesson in Ephesians. God is uniting all things in heaven and in earth to Christ. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. He is summing up all things under Christ's headship. All things. He's reconciling all things to himself. Either willingly or unwillingly, we will all submit to Christ. That is what God is doing through Christ. That is his purpose. And it will not fail, and it will not be thwarted. His plan will not be thwarted. You may be here right now, this morning. In this past week, this past month, this past year, you've changed. Maybe your weight's changed. Maybe your hair's changed. Maybe there's less of it. Maybe your eyesight's changed. Maybe your nose and ears have changed. Just realized this last year that your nose and ears keep growing your entire life. You know that? I've been looking at my nose a little differently lately. It's all changing. You're changing. Everything's changing. Accept God and his character and his purposes and his promises. Or perhaps more seriously, your circumstances have changed this last year drastically. You just feel a little out of tilt. Perhaps you've gotten married. Or you've gotten a divorce. You've had a child. Or you've lost a child. You've got a new job, or you've lost a job. You've purchased a new home, or you lost your home. You've gained a new church, but you've lost a lot of friends. I believe Christ would speak to you today and say this, I never get off script. I never get off script. Oh, I get off script when I preach. But Christ never gets off script. Never. There's two things I want to take away from this sermon. It's, shh, listen, and hear this. Christ never gets off script. Christ's purposes purposes for you in this world have not changed one iota, no matter what you've experienced this last week, month, or year. Christ is still on the throne. You know what? He's the only one who can open the scroll and make sense of your life. 
So are you listening to him? Are you trusting him? Or are you complaining, whining, chafing, striving, reaching for the scrawl, but only grasping air and wind? You can't open that scroll. No creature can open that scroll. There's only one who is qualified to open the scroll. I'll give you a hint. It's not the angels. No. It's not the angels. It's Christ. To quote Hebrews 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he, that's God, ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. To no angels did he say this. The author here is quoting Psalm 110 in this climatic last verse. It is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. You see, angels could stand before God, but no angel has ever been invited to sit before God on his throne. That place belongs exclusively to Jesus as the Son and as the Sovereign One. So where does this leave angels? the ones who are many, the ones who are ministers, the ones who are messengers, the ones who are awesome in might. Well, the author answers the question with the question in the last verse, verse 14. He says this, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? You catch that? The angels are Christ's servants, and thus there are servants. That is, for all those who inherit salvation. They are the ones assisting Christ in executing the will of the Father, in fighting the enemy, and ministering to our persevering souls. Who was it that struck down 185,000 Assyrians when King Sennacherib attacked and laid siege in Jerusalem? Who was it? We learn from Scripture, it was an angel of the Lord. Who was it that rescued Peter to open up the prison gates and set him free in Acts 12? It was an angel of the Lord. Who was it that surrounded Elijah and his servant when they were being attacked by the Syrians? It was angels of the Lord. But the other question this morning is not where does this leave the angels? As great as they are in many ways. There's a much more pertinent question. And it's this. Where does this leave you and me? Does this leave you listening? Does it leave you worshiping Christ? Does Christ have your attention and have your trust? Church, don't be enamored with angels. Be enamored with Christ, who commands the angels to squash the enemy of your soul at his feet. He did so at the cross. And the son, who was a sovereign one, oh, he's coming back to claim his spoils. That's you and me. It is certain. Salvation and the scroll are in his hands. Let us pray. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as 
I prayed at the very beginning. I ask now that you would tune our ears to hear. Oh Lord, there's so much in our minds, even as we listen to a sermon. There's so much of the world, life circumstances that just bombard us at these moments. It's so easy to lose focus, Lord, and not to hear. But Lord, by your grace, we now posture ourselves before you that we may hear of your Son, that you may boast of your Son, the Beloved with whom I am well pleased. May we too be pleased with your Son Oh, and receive comfort and encouragement and hope even now as we lift our eyes and open our ears and as we sing to you, to your Son, to the Sovereign One who reigns on high from heaven, the hope of glory. Amen. Amen.